Well, good morning again. So VBS looked really cool, didn't it? Yeah. And if, yeah. If you got a special seat under one of the palm trees in the back, that those, those are the ideal spots this morning. <laughs> and, uh, the, whole, the whole building was transformed. It was, really, it was really quite an amazing thing. So fun to be a part of. Um, hey, if you're a guest with us, we're continuing a, a summer preaching series uh, in, a, in a series called uh, Knowing God by Name. And we're just looking through some of the Old Testament names for God. And the, the, the premise, the, the big idea is that Christianity is, much, uh, is, is about much more than uh, knowing about God. It's uh, about knowing God. We can actually know God as a person, not just things about God. This gets to this great truth, which we have to combat, don't we? When we're kind, kind of in the, in the circle of faith, in the family of faith, somehow, sometimes, God can move in our minds from being a person to being an idea. At least that's true of me. I don't know if that's true of you. I can start to think thoughts about God and somehow get disconnected from this great truth that God is a person who actually loves me and desires good for me and us and the world. So this series is taking us through the names of God, just not so that we can know more about God, so that, but so that we can know God better. And uh, today's name is uh, Jehovah Nisi, or the Lord is my banner. And really, this, this whole idea of knowing God is... Uh, the thrust of what Jesus shared when he was with us. He said that knowing God was eternal life. Remember, remember this verse? Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And Jesus said he was about the business of making God known to people. He said, as he was praying to God, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known to them. So Jesus and the Holy Spirit are in the business now of making God known to us. And again, if you might be new to this series, just a quick reminder as to the, the names, foundational names of God in Scripture. If you're reading the Bible and you see Lord, all capitals, that's referring to the actual name of God, Yahweh, or through a variety of translational choices, we have an English version, Jehovah, for that. If you see a capital L, small O-R-D, Lord, that typically means the name for God was Adonai in scripture. And if you see God, that typically means Elohim. And again, the distinction here is that that top one, uh, L-O-R-D, all caps, is the actual name of God. Not just something God does for people. This is God's name. So those are the foundational names and then there are compound names. And we've got one of the compound names today. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord my banner. So, the place this name appears is in Exodus chapter 17, the last half. So let me, let me read this for us. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. 
When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, uh, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, it takes a little context to kind of grapple with how this passage applies to our lives uh, today and tomorrow and, and throughout the week. So before we dive into that application part, which is the point, by the way, of any sermon, really, we, we need a little background here. So let's think about the enemy and the staff. So the, the enemy, who were the Amalekites? First verse that we read today, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Uh, the, Amal- the Amalekites uh, were maybe obviously the descendants of Amalek, but what you might not remember is Amalek was a grandson of Esau, Jacob and Esau, the, the twin boys, twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And um, in this, the Amalekites were direct descendants then of Isaac and Rebekah. But there was something very interesting about the kids of Isaac and Rebekah. If you're less familiar with the Bible stories, uh, uh, Esau was the older, Jacob the younger, and before they were born, we have this from Scripture. The babies, that's Esau and Jacob, jostled each other within Rebekah, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And this was all telegraphing a future event when Esau would sell his birthright for a bowl of stew and there was this great division between Jacob and Esau. Jacob fled and Uh, there's a much larger story there. At at the end of that story, there's something of a reconciliation, but then in future generations, there was much more division between these two people groups. And the Amalekites would grow very large, and they would be a persistent thorn in Israel's flesh. One historian says they were, quote, a constant menace to Israel's spiritual and national life. So when, when we read about the Amalekites coming to attack the Israelites, you have to imagine this sense of betrayal, This is a family gig. And not only was it a family kind of battle, it was a cowardly sneak attack. We don't get that from the passage we read today, but at the end of Deuteronomy, when Moses is about to die and he's telling Israel what they should remember and what they should do, he writes this, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So seemingly the description of this attack was that it was a sneak attack, presumably on the most vulnerable of Israel, the elderly, the young families, that kind of thing, bringing up the rear of the march 
so we can understand another important part of this story. As opposed to other times when Israel gets attacked and they feel kind of blindsided and there's confusion and and fear, that was not present in this story. There was just determined response. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Israel suffered a sneak attack on the weakest among them, even though at this time they were a little more than kind of a, 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 an ill-equipped mob of people wandering in the desert. Uh, the Amalekites were a little bit ahead of them, as I understand it, in terms of experience and military force. Moses looked at Joshua and said, get the A-team together because tomorrow we're going after them. Because what they did was so wrong. Such a brazen disregard for human life. It's absolutely clear what needs to happen. And he said, I will stand on top of the hill and hold the staff of God in my hands. So it was very clear that Moses meant business and it seems like his sense was that God meant business too. So the enemy, that's the enemy. The staff of God, what, what is this? The staff that Moses had first appears in the burning bush encounter. Again, if you're less familiar with the Bible, that's in Exodus 3, and it records a time when Moses looks over, he's out in the wilderness, and he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed, and he has an encounter with God there. And God basically tells him, hey, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh on behalf of all the Israelites, and through you, the Israelites will be set free. But first, before you go to Pharaoh, you've got to go to your elders and tell them that I appeared to you and that I'm going to send you to the, to the, the Pharaoh. And Moses said, look, what if they don't, they don't believe me? Here's actually what he said. What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Presumably a walking stick or a shepherd's staff, something like that. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So the staff was the instrument that God used to reveal his power, that, uh, for, that Moses could prove that God had really appeared to him. Through, through that staff, the plagues of Egypt uh, would, would come into being. Uh, you know, God opened a way through the Red Sea uh, through Moses and, and, and this staff and closed it again on Israel's enemies. The staff of God was the symbol of God's power and presence. And and this staff was a banner. It's really important. In the ancient world, a banner was not necessarily a flag, as we might think of a banner today. A banner was most often a pole with a shiny thing on top of it. A standard, we might think of. So the staff of God was a, a sign, a symbol, a standard reminded people of who God was and and what God had done. 
Says one commentator, it stood for God's cause, his battle. It was a sign of deliverance, of salvation. When this banner was lifted up, God's people rallied around it. Trusting in God's provision and deliverance and salvation, it was a symbol of God's presence and power. And as people looked to it, they trusted God and were empowered. And as Moses held up the staff, on this day it was visible to the armies below. And as they looked to it, they remembered. They remembered what was real. They remembered that God is a person who is for them. They remembered that God had acted in the past decisively on their behalf and that God would do it again. I don't know if any of you have, uh, it's kind of an older movie now, but the movie Inception, and it's it's a wild thriller of a movie where uh, a team of people can enter the dream of another person and kind of mess with them and alter their reality by messing with their dream. But it doesn't just stop there. You can enter a dream, and then in the dream world, you can enter a dream had in the dream world. So you enter the next level of dream and the next level. And as the story goes, pretty soon you can lose track of where you are, of what's real and, and what's not. So the primary character, Leonardo DiCaprio, has what he called a totem. It was a little top. And he'd carry it with him always. And when he spun it, if it finally wobbled and tipped over, he could be assured that he was living in the real world, not in a dream world. It was a standard, something of a banner we might say, reminding him of what was real. So the enemy in the background, or I'm sorry, the enemy and the, uh, uh, the staff, that's all by way of background because all of this applies directly to us because they represent greater spiritual truths. Um, Amalek represents the forces of this world that are are opposed to God in all ages, right? This gets to the reality of spiritual struggle in this world and in our lives. The apostle Paul names it. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a struggle. It's not going away in this lifetime. Our involvement in it is inevitable. You can't take a pass on this struggle because it is upon us right here and right now. There's an individual aspect of this and a universal aspect of this. Says the Apostle John, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. He goes on in in Galatians to talk about the individual struggle here with, with, with evil and with the enemy. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with one another so that you are not to do whatever you want. Now, it doesn't really matter whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not. If you're a human being, you have had this experience You might not describe it in these kinds of terms, but you have had this experience because the Bible teaches a very great truth that you have experienced and I have experienced, and that is that written on our hearts is something of a code that helps us determine right from wrong. 
don't believe this just because I say so. There have been vast sociological studies all around the world, except for a very deviant culture here and there. Everybody everywhere thinks it's wrong to kill another human being. It's fundamentally wrong. And we can unpack this with a whole variety of things. Very interestingly, when you look back on it, that summary of things that are considered to be wrong cross-culturally very much parallels the Ten Commandments. That's no mistake. Because God's a person. God is real. He has written a code on our heart. We know what's right and we know what's wrong. And there's a struggle, isn't there? I know you've experienced it because I've experienced it. I experience it. I know something is right. I know something is good. And I know something is wrong. And I shouldn't do it. And man, I'm drawn to that. We are drawn to the thing that we know to be wrong. Or we can be. This is why the apostle concludes. I mean, there's this conflict. So you really shouldn't do whatever you want. There's a whole other sermon waiting to be preached about that cultural idea. Hey, do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Talk about conflict. Those two ideas are very much in conflict, right? This all goes to say that we desire stuff that's hurtful to ourselves and others. And we shouldn't do that stuff. But we're strangely drawn to it. There's a struggle. The Apostle Paul names it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. There's an individual struggle with with evil and with a very active adversary in the evil one. Who says the Bible prowls around like a roaring lion, right, looking for someone to devour? There's an individual struggle. There's a universal struggle. The book of Revelation speaks of a time when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Remind you of the hallelujah chorus, right? The scripture speaks of a day when that will be true, but that day hasn't arrived yet. It hasn't yet happened. Uh, Now, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It has begun. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus tells us, right next to us, right here, not across the parking lot away from us, right here. But the kingdom of the world has not yet become fully the kingdom of our Lord and Messiah. There's struggle still. Universally, there's struggle. So the struggle's inevitable. The Israelites experienced it. We experience it. Moses learned along the way that, that the Israelites could not prevail in their own strength. That lesson applies to us as well. Not by might nor by power, says the Lord, but by my spirit. We can't overcome these things by trying harder or doing better or trying to avoid sin more faithfully. While all of those things are worthy endeavors, and we should do all of them, we will not overcome in this struggle through those means. It is not by might nor by power. We can't do it. 
Thus the invitation to surrender to the one who can and has. The book of Numbers records a time when Israel sent spies into the promised land and and, um, there were 12 who went, two came back and said, we can take it, let's go. But 10 said, there are giants, there's no way we can do it. So the Israelites backed away. And then when they realized their wrongdoing, they said, no, no, actually, let's, let's go. Look, we can take it. Let's do it. No, let's go, everybody. And Moses said, don't, don't do that. God's not going to go with you in that. You missed the anointed kind of opportunity there, so don't, don't do that. But they did. They were defeated and routed, ironically, by the same Amalekites they had just defeated at Rephidim. Same enemy, different outcome. That's important. Remember the classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Our best effort will not get it done. I mean, our struggles will not be overcome through our own strength. We have to rely upon God. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart in all of your ways. Oh, rely not on your own understanding. I messed that up. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and rely not on your own understanding. We can't do it. We can't do it and we've got a really, really good reason to trust God. Every time Israel was sent out into battle in the ancient world, uh, and, and, and most often of those battles kind of paralleled some kind of evil they were, were combating, following through on some instruction of God, though there's some mystery around that as well. The priests would speak over the people this. Hear, Israel, Today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified of them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. The, The priest would remind all of God's people of God's presence. And that applies to us today even more because our banner got a serious upgrade. We don't just have a staff, right? There was another time in Israel's history when uh, because of, of unfaithfulness, God sent snakes among the Israelites and snakes were biting people and they were, they were dying. And they pled with Moses, pray for us. So Moses prayed for them and God said, make a bronze serpent and stick it on top of a pole. Eh, a banner pole with a shiny thing on top then hold it up in front of the people and when they look to the snake they will be saved sign of deliverance and salvation so Moses did that and when he lifted up the snake and people looked to it they were saved here's the text Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole then when anyone was who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake they lived they looked at the banner and they lived. 
represented God's deliverance and salvation. Look at what Jesus said in John 3.14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Remember Old Testament, banner was a pole with something on top of it to remind us of God. In the New Testament, the pole is the cross. And the thing on top is God himself in the person of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is our banner now. We're not the right men on our side. The man of God's own choosing. We have a better banner. God himself is our banner. And Jesus is far above all other powers. Jesus is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Whatever we're facing, the God to whom our banner points is greater. He's conquered before us, the Bible tells us. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He's promised his presence, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And faith in him is assurance of our victory. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Jesus is our banner, and he's a much better banner than anything or anyone else to whom we might look. I mean, Peter acknowledged this right when Jesus made a particularly difficult teaching and a lot of his disciples left. It was a teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and most people said, what in the world are you talking about? We're, we're out of here. Jesus looked at the 12 and he said, are you gonna leave too? And Peter looked at him and said, to whom shall we go? There's nowhere else to go. You know, I, I remember when our VBS theme verse became real for me. And it really is the answer to the question, you know, interesting questions to spark spiritual dialogue. Uh, if, if you're a parent with your kids, if you're not married with friends or family, it's good conversation. This question, when do you feel like you first heard God's voice? You really, when do you feel like you went from being an idea to, oh no, I think I, I, think I heard God speak to me. Uh, for me, it was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I had committed my life to Christ. I, I knew that I really believed in my head that I lived in a world where a resurrection has happened. Understood that kind of linchpin, that's the main thing in Christian faith. I'm like, yep, I, it makes sense. I, I can't conceive of any other scenario that better explains how history has unfolded in this world than that we live in a world where a resurrection has actually happened. In, in my logical brain, you've got a really long row to hoe to make that case, that there's a better explanation than that which the scripture unfolds for us. But that's a different conversation too. But yet I was filled with doubt. I was filled with struggle. I just could not get by. How in the world can I say I believe this? I just... 
Lord, I, really? People don't rise from the dead. This can't, this is, I believe, but I can't believe, there's a struggle within me. And then I read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I started one evening up in Elk Rapids, Michigan at the resort I used to manage, reading at the beginning of Proverbs because those always kind of made sense to me. And when I hit Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, I heard God speak. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And what I heard him say was, you've been relying completely on your own understanding. You've been trying to place your trust in your own understanding. And there's a different way. Instead of leaning that direction toward your own understanding, you can lean this way toward me and everything Jesus has done for you and put your weight on me. Trust me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And we can. You know, when life gets wild, trust God. VBSers, do it with me. When God speaks, trust God. When life gets scary, trust God. When life doesn't make sense, trust God. When we can't see the way, trust God. It's about a transfer of trust. It's that to which Jesus invites you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, please. God, you are so very good. Thank you that in our wanderings and wanderings, in all the many ways we have departed your presence, you still love us. And you call us back to you. Not only do you call us back to you, you pursue us by your spirit, wooing us, inviting us, uh, chasing us down. God, you are so very good. If there's anything in us today that's resisting your goodness and your pursuit of us by the power of your spirit, break that. Help us turn to you. Pour out your spirit in us and fill us with your goodness again, God. Not that we might just experience spiritual warm fuzzies, but that we might know you and serve you and make the name of Jesus known to everyone everywhere. It's in his name we pray. Amen.